0: Hello, Cortez Community Radio listeners. My name is Francesca, and welcome to today's edition of Listening In. Today, I'm going to read from a book titled *Extra Virginity: The Sublime and Scandalous World of Olive Oil*, written by Tom Mueller, a gentleman who now lives in the hillsides of Italy amongst the olive groves. If You have ever purchased olive oil, wondered how to select, how to read the labels? Well, this book is for you. If you haven't already read it, you're never going to shop the same way for olive oil again. We're going to start with his prologue, which is titled, uh, interestingly enough, Essences. And we join the author as he is in the midst of a tasting extravaganza by some of the world's most professional tasters. So here we go, extra virginity, prologue, essences. When the olive oil reached 28 degrees Celsius, the temperature at which its aromatic substances become volatile, the eight tasters removed the lids from the glasses that contained the first sample of oil, inserted their noses, and began snuffing loudly, some closing their eyes. These were members of the tasting panel of the Corporazione Mastri Oleari, which roughly translated means the Corporation of the Master Oil Chefs. In Milan, one of the most respected private oil associations, they sat in individual cubicles of white formica, each equipped with a sink, a pen, and a stack of tasting forms, and a yogurt maker with a thermostat, on which sat six tulip-shaped tasting glasses containing samples of oil. They were a diverse group, which included a 33-year-old farmer from Lake Garda, a 47-year-old Tuscan Marchesa, who worked as a personal motivation coach, and a 66-year-old Milanese businessman. They began trickling in around 9 a.m., grumbling about being deprived of their morning coffee and cigarettes, which are forbidden before a tasting because they dull the senses. Now they sat silently in their cubicles in attitudes of attention and reflection, like chemists in a lab or scholars in a library. On shelves around the wall were several hundred bottles of olive oil, as well as 16 brown laboratory bottles with neat white labels on which were printed, musty, fasty, rancid, winey vinegary, cucumber, grubby, and other unpleasant smells, these being the official taste flaws in olive oil, which these eight people had trained their senses to detect in the faintest degree. The panel tasted the six oil samples according to a strict protocol, which, like each feature of the panel test room itself, was prescribed by Italian and European law cradling the glasses in their palms like brandy-snifters to keep the oil warm, they smelted carefully, jotting down the fragrances they perceived. They took a mouthful of oil, and then, as if they'd all been stricken by an oil-induced seizure, they began sucking in air violently at the corners of their mouths, a technique known as strippaggio, which coats the taste buds in an emulsion of oil and saliva and wafts the oil's aromas up into the nasal passages. After the first volcanic slurps, the Stripaggi grew softer and more meditative and took on personal notes, the marchesa's wheezy and almost wistful, the business man's deep and wet as if he were gargling Epsom salts. After tasting and retasting each oil for 10 to 15 minutes, and periodically cleansing their palates with mineral water, they recorded its flavor, aroma, intensity, texture, and other characteristics on a scoring sheet. The tasters pottered in their cubicles for the next 90 minutes, snuffling and slurping and musing over the oils. Finally, after evaluating the last of the samples, they stood and stretched like people rising from sleep, and moved to the conference table in the middle of the room. Here, they enjoyed their long-awaited cigarettes and coffee, while the panel leader, Alfredo Mancianti, collated their scoring sheets. The testers themselves don't score an oil, Flavio Zaramella, the Milanese businessman and president of the Mastro Oleari told me. They just identify and quantify the sensations they perceive in it. It's the panel leader who actually assigns a score to the oil by making a composite of their eight assessments using robust statistical methods. Looking over the panel leader's shoulder as he worked, I saw that the eight tasters had been remarkably consistent in their appraisals, describing the texture and personality of each oil in similar ways, and identifying the same subtle flavors and fragrances in each. Artichoke, fresh cut grass, Green tomato, kiwi. The Tonda Iblea from southern Sicily was memorable with those afternotes of artichoke and green tomato, Zaramella told the other tasters. But all in all, I think the best full-bodied oil was the Marcinese D.O.P. Terra di Bari from Puglia. The others nodded, though one taster said she preferred the Villa Magra Grand Cru from Tuscany because it was more balanced and harmonious. By now, I was finding it hard to sit still. Artichoke? Fresh cut grass? They hadn't been tasting first growth Bordeaux, for heaven's sake, but liquid fat. No doubt these oils had been made with great skill, cold pressed and all that, but artichoke? Green tomato? Kiwi? Something in my face must have alerted Zaramella to my skepticism. He stubbed out his cigarettes, hopped to his feet, took my arm, and steered me into one of the tasting cubicles. Oil talk sounds like effete nonsense, until you actually put a good oil in your mouth, he said. He began pouring samples of oil into tulip glasses and placing them on the warmer beside me, capping each with a glass waver to hold in the aromas. When the thermostat light went out, indicating that the oil had reached 28 degrees, Zaramella showed me the approved oil-tasting technique. How to smell the sample deeply several times, trying to clear the mind between sniffs, how to take a small sip to roll the oil around my tongue to coat the inside of my mouth, and how to perform the loud, slurpy, stripaggio, From time to time, he reminded me to clean my palate with mineral water or a bite of Granny Smith apple. For the next hour, under Zaramella's direction, like someone beginning to study ballet or yoga or violin with a master, I made my first brief foray into the vast, largely uncharted continent of extra virgin olive oil. I learned that oils made from different olive varieties or from the same varieties grown in different places, can be every bit as diverse as wine from different grape varietals. The straw-colored Casaliva oil from Lake Garda was almost sweet, with hints of pine nuts and almonds. While the emerald green Moraiolo from central Tuscany was so peppery it left tears in my eyes and a lovely sear at the back of my throat. And sure enough, the Tonda Iblea from the hills of southern Sicily had distinct green tomato and artichoke overtones, just as Zaramella and his colleagues had said. Tasting these oils was like strolling through a botanic garden, touring a perfume factory, and taking a long drive through spring meadows with the windows down, all at the same time, equal parts scientific analysis and lingering attentive of hedonism. I raised the last sample Zaramella had poured for me, sniffed it perfunctorily, and sipped. Then, after a swirling moment of bewildering and dawning disgust, I spat it into the sink. Something was wrong with this oil. After the tart, intensely fresh-tasting essences I'd been trying until now, it felt flabby and coarse in my mouth and tasted like spoiled fruit. Zaramella laughed his gruff laugh. I bought the oil supermarket oil last, he said, because it would have ruined your palate for the good ones, as surely as if you'd gargled cat piss. He pulled down the brown lab bottles from the shelf on the wall and set them in a row on the conference table. Now comes the fun part, he told me. You have to figure out precisely what's wrong with this last oil. It's like being a detective or a coroner. He opened the bottles one by one and handed them to me, telling me to try to memorize each scent. The bottles contained a stunning range of reeks, stenches, and pongs, to which their labels rancid, fusty, winey, vinegary, muddy sediment, metallic, exparto, grubby hardly did justice. Then, after several bites of the apple and a lot of deep breathing to cleanse my palate, I sampled the oil again, sniffing and tasting and trying to put names to its flaws. I thought I recognized several and jotted them down on a profile sheet. When I'd finished, Zaramella drew me out of the cubicle and sat me down at the conference table, seated himself across from me, lit another cigarette, and took a voluptuous drag. He scanned my sheet. Pretty good, he grunted, exhaling a cloud of smoke that briefly darkened the room. Rancid and Fusty are both here, but you missed a few. The whiny vinegary is strong, and there's a noticeable muddy sediment too. He picked up the bottle of supermarket oil I'd been tasting. You know, according to the law, if an oil contains just one of these defects, one hint of Fusty, a trace of brine, it's not extra virgin grade. Basta! End of story. In fact, With the flaws this oil has, it's classified as lampante, lamp oil, which can only be legally sold as fuel. It's not fit for eating. It's only fit for burning. Trouble is, the law is never enforced. Suddenly, he banged the bottle down on the tabletop, making coffee cups and ashtrays hop and rattle. This is what nearly everyone in the world thinks is extra virgin olive oil. This stuff is killing quality oil and putting honest oil makers out of business. In wine, you can trust the label. If it says Dom Perignon, 1964, then that's what's in the bottle, not last month's Beaujolais Nouveau. In fact, champagne and Beaujolais support each other, spreading the prestige and brand recognition of French wine up and down the quality scale. But oil labels all say the same thing, whether the bottle contains a magnificent oil or this skifezza. He pointed the neck of the bottle at me like a gun, then lifted his glasses to read the label. It says what every oil says. A hundred percent Italian, cold pressed, stone ground, extra virgin. He shook his head as if unable to believe his eyes. Extra virgin? What's this oil got to do with virginity? This is a whore! Then, with the same precision he'd shown in the taste test, Zaramella catalogued the crimes widely practiced in the oil business. He described the deodorizing equipment he'd seen in Spanish mills, particularly in Andalusia, where it is illegally used to remove the bad flavors and aromas of inferior oils in order to sell them as extra virgin. He condemned the widespread practice of labeling heavily refined oils pure even though the refining process has stripped them of nearly all their health benefits and sensory qualities. Light, although they contain the same number of calories per gram as other oils, and organic, from olives grown without pesticides or other chemicals, when, in reality, they were made from ordinary olives. Small time oil crooks colored cheap soybean or canola oil with industrial chlorophyll dumped in beta carotene as a flavoring and sold the mixture as extra virgin olive oil in bottles adorned with Italian flags and the names of imaginary producers in famed olive-growing regions like Puglia or Tuscany. More sophisticated large-scale frauds, he explained, required skilled chemists and multi-million dollar laboratory facilities, and involved networks of conniving customs agents, businessmen, and government officials. Zaramella identified the headquarters of oil fraud throughout the Mediterranean, naming refineries and factories in Lugano, Switzerland, Malaga, Spain, Sfax in Tunisia, and elsewhere throughout the Mediterranean where bogus extra virgins were fabricated. He reviewed the countries throughout the world where fake extra virgins were sold and explained why the US was the best place on earth to sell adulterated oil. In the coming year, I spent considerable time with Zamarella at the Milan offices of the Mastri Oleari and at oil tastings and conferences throughout Italy. I learned of his penchant for big creative schemes and long odds. At different times in his career, he'd founded a thriving high fashion firm in Milan, traded petroleum futures through an offshore company registered in Wyoming. On a wall in his office was a map of Somalia where, in 1987, as the head of a humanitarian aid project, he supervised the construction of a high-tech hospital in Barawi, a city on the Indian Ocean, I got everyone working together, communists, Catholic priests, Muslims, professors, illiterates, anyone with the will to get things done," he recalled. Two months after the hospital was completed, it was destroyed in the Civil War. Generosity is the purest form of egotism, he said with a shrug. Zaramella spoke of his abdominal cancer for which he'd undergone four operations and of the remarkable therapeutic properties of extra virgin olive oil against numerous conditions, including cancer. His illness, he said, had given him a special sensitivity to the healing qualities of oil. And he described how he'd first become interested in olive oil fraud 20 years earlier, after he started making oil from the trees on a small farm he'd bought in Umbria and found that the farmer who tended them had been swindling him by cutting his olive oil with cheaper sunflower seed oil. He said he was devoting the remaining years of his life to his biggest, most difficult scheme of all, redeeming the olive oil business from fraud. Though his operations had left him gaunt, Zaramella still had the mellow baritone and plump animated face of the 120-kilo Epicurean he'd been before his illness. My fight is a civic responsibility, he once told me, to the thousands of honest oil makers who can hardly make a living in this distorted market and to millions of consumers who are being deprived of the therapeutic properties of quality oil. Real extra virgin oil contains powerful antioxidants and anti-inflammatories which help to prevent degenerative conditions, like my cancer. Fake extra virgin has next to none of them. Great oil is the essence of the Mediterranean diet. Bad oil isn't just a deception, it's a crime against public health. Zaramella's dedication to olive oil went beyond a sense of justice or the desire for a cure. Once, we stood in his grove near Assisi in springtime, when yellow lilies were blooming among the trees, and looked out over one of those hillsides where St. Francis had once sung odes to the birds and the sun and the sky. Since ancient times, olive oil has stood for purity, health, holiness, Zaramella said softly, almost to himself, in a voice resonant with emotion. I'm not a religious man, but for me, olive oil is sacred. Here was Flavio Zaramella, a merry atheist, speaking of olive oil's sacredness a viveur with a terminal disease dedicating his last energies to oil's healthfulness. Standing with him among the olives and the lilies of Saint Francis I first realized that olive oil did something special to people. Just as oil, a powerful solvent, brings out essential, sometimes unexpected flavors in food, it also reveals the essence of certain people. Their hidden contradictions, their secret passions and dreams. It gets under their skin, seeps into their mind, and colors their thoughts like no other food I know. As I went deeper into oil, I began to see this condition in many places. I recognized its symptoms in octogenarian olive farmers and nonagenarian millers, as well as eager young oil executives at multinational food companies. I saw it in the head of a food cooperative who made oil at enormous risk from olive groves confiscated from the mafia and in monks who made oil from the thousand-year-old trees on their monastery grounds. I met politicians, union leaders, European Union regulators, historians, archaeologists, chemists, agronomists, and botanists, all of whose faces lit up when the conversation turned to oil and who had always had a story to tell, funny or shocking or sad. Even shady characters who'd grown rich making fake oil by the tanker load spoke wistfully of their childhood spent at the olive mill and of the life lessons they learnt there. In every eye was the same oily glint of unfeigned fascination with the substance they'd do things for that they'd do for nothing else on earth all these people suffered from the same condition they were obsessed by oil i began to pay closer attention to this rich slippery subtly mysterious substance a vegetable oil made from a fruit a fresh fruit juice with the ideal blend of fats for the human body a fat that slims the arteries and nourishes the mind an age-old food with space-age qualities that medicinal science is just beginning to understand. I started visiting different producers, first in Liguria, where I live, then in neighboring Lombardi, Piemonte, and Toscana. I bought a bottle of oil from each producer and compared two or three at a time back home, sipping from tablespoons and little shot glasses at first then buying tulip-shaped glasses for more precision. My eight- and ten-year-old sons, Jeremy and Nicholas, began tasting with me. As we sipped, I told them about the people who made each oil, where they lived, how they talked and carried themselves. I showed them pictures, and the boys studied the faces of these oil women and oil men, noticed their weather-creased faces and large, strong-looking hands they began to point out when certain characteristics in an oil resembled its maker the big-bodied gruffness of flavio's aramella's flos viridis oil the sunny joie de vivre of a pale golden extra virgin made by a woman on lake garda with laughing blue eyes and blonde tresses Before long, they were holding forth about the tomato and artichoke highlights in certain oils and even seemed to like the peppery bite of the bigger Tuscan and Pugliese cultivars, as if their young bodies sensed that the harshness was doing them good. Now and then, I brought home bad oils from a discount supermarket or a well-meaning but maladroit farmer and watched the boys sniff, wince, and hiss, L'Ampante! with the same righteous anger as Flavio's Aramella. The first time my wife, Francesca, saw us sipping olive oil, her expression slid slowly from disbelief to disgust. I'd rather eat butter cubes, she said. My wife is from Milan, where the traditional cuisine is based on butter and lard, not oil. But I persisted. I showed her articles from The Lancet, and the New England Journal of Medicine and other prominent journals about recently discovered health benefits in olive oil, against pathologies as diverse as heart disease, breast cancer, and Alzheimer's. I dressed our salads with splendid and exotic oils. One night, a bianco collila that brought out the bitterness of arugula. The next, a nocellara del belice that inexplicably muted it. Gradually, my wife relented. Though she still wouldn't drink olive oil neat, she did start trying different oils on raw vegetables, salads, and in sauces. She substituted oil for butter in croissants, muffins, and cakes, which sometimes had a faint greenish tinge, as if they'd come from the garden rather than the oven, but were crusty and flavorful. These days, she keeps several different olive oils in the kitchen, using them like different spices depending on the food she cooks and makes sure we all eat two tablespoons of top-quality olive oil every day, following the advice of leading medical researchers. She, too, is becoming one of the oil-obsessed. Oil obsession is an ancient condition. Rereading poems and sacred texts, I thought I knew well. I caught glints and scenes I'd never seen before, of a time when olive oil was not only an essential food, but a catalyst of civilized life and a vital link between people and the divine. Odysseus, haggard and salt-crusted after a shipwreck, spreads his body with oil and suddenly appears as handsome as a god. Mary Magdalene, the repentant prostitute, anoints Christ's feet with an aromatic oil that fills the house with its fragrance, then wipes clean with her hair. The prophet Mohammed, peace be upon him, uses so much olive oil on his skin that his shawl is often drenched with it. I read of Egyptian pharaohs who made thanks offerings of the finest olive oil to the sun god Ra. I read of the meager ration of lamp oil in the sacred menorah, only enough for one day, that lit the temple of Jerusalem for eight full days during its dedication until more oil could be obtained, a miracle that Jews still celebrate at Hanukkah. The dove returning to Noah's ark with an olive branch in its beak meant not only God's forgiveness after the flood, but that Noah had come to a land of peace. Olives are slow-growing trees that require regular tending, which can only happen in peacetime. The fruit and fragrance of good oil are tempered with bitterness, as life's beauty is. Why, I wondered, are olive branches and trees such enduring symbols, even in places where they aren't native? What is it about oil itself that has made it a universal liquid for millennia, seeping into every aspect of human life? And how did life in this oil-soaked world look and smell and feel? I began a series of experiments. I bought several oil lamps, replicas of medieval and Roman models, and lit them throughout the house, their flames floating above dark pools of oil and emanating a faint sweetness bathing familiar scenes in tremulous amber light of the past. I tried olive oil as a skin lotion. It softened chips and soothed sunburn and healed my baby daughter's diaper rash with one application. I made a batch of soap on the stovetop, mixing olive oil with tallow and lye and pouring the resulting paste into molds I'd cut from blocks of olive wood. The soap produced a pinkish, faintly slimy lather, which left the skin wonderfully soft, but was too slippery for washing dishes, as we decided after several broken plates. I tested olive oil's qualities as a solvent and lubricant, polishing mirrored surfaces on an old toaster and chrome trim, revealing new depths of grain in a battered walnut tabletop, silencing squeaky windows and doors throughout the house. I poured out little jars of olive oil and dropped in garlic cloves, rosemary sprigs, orange rind, and boiled eggs, and found within days that their olfactory essences had leached into the oil and now lingered there, magically imprisoned like genies in a bottle. I jury-rigged a still from a pressure cooker in a coil of copper tubing, used it to extract essential oils from lavender, wisteria, jasmine, and bergamot, then stirred these essences into an olive oil base, creating vividly scented oils, which I rubbed on my face and furtively into my hair, thinking how it would be to play the Old Testament priest and pour the entire jar over my head, drenching my beard and dripping from my clothes. The origin of olive oil's universal appeal are being uncovered today by scientists in a range of fields with whom I consulted, each opening another doorway on this wide new world. With nutritionists and lipid chemists, I peered into the molecular structure of olive oil, glimpsing the natural antioxidants and fatty acids which once induced people to anoint their heads and smear their faces with oil, following some obscure instinct to health. They used it to cleanse and beautify their skin because the primary lipid component of oil, oleic acid, is a powerful solvent which also enables oil to extract flavors in cooking and hold fragrances and perfume. Both the practical and the mythical popularity of oil derive, at least partly, from the almost miraculous agronomic characteristics of the olive tree, which thrives even in desert conditions and, when destroyed by fire or frost, sends up green shoots from the root ball through which the tree is reborn. The olive tree crop is itself a minor miracle. As one agronomist told me, the yield of an olive tree is an upward curve tending towards infinity. There was a hint of wonder in his voice. Continuing my search for answers about olive oil, I began to travel places where great olive oil is made and where it remains in some way central to daily life. But the first stage of my olive oil journey, and in many ways the most important, was to Puglia, the heel of the Italian boot, This region produces a large part of Italy's oil, as it has for thousands of years, back when the hillsides of famous oil areas like Tuscany and Liguria, Spain and North Africa were bare of groves, and oliviculture culture in America and Australia were millennia away. Wild olives, or termiti, thrived in Puglia's hot, dry climate since the last ice age, providing sturdy rootstock on which farmers grafted the domestic olive trees brought there by Phoenician traders and Greek colonists. Many bullies still pour a cross of olive oil on their soup and pause at midday by the hearth to drink a little cup of warmed oil. Daily rituals of health and propitiation. Olive oil has been a staple here forever, and its beauty and ugliness come through with singular clarity.